interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. The two most difficult times to teach, right after lunch, right after dinner. I stopped doing evening classes a, a while ago. It gets settled in. Uh, uh, but there is uh, a Sabbath coming this afternoon. Uh, a rest uh, for your weary souls. You've been terrific to stay with us uh, all last night as well as all day uh, today so far. Um, and I, I do hope there's a sense in which, well, I'm not sure I planned it this way, but that the paradigm of, um, of creation and rest uh, as that which satisfies our soul leads us to worship in the morning, w- wherever you might be. Uh, been creating hopefully some new worlds uh, uh, for you, at least uh, fleshing out some worlds that maybe you haven't explored uh, as uh, as deeply as you might otherwise. Uh, you can tell uh, that in our family, uh, uh, I'm the big picture person and my wife is the detail person. Uh, I, I've thrown a lot of big picture stuff and I appreciate uh, your willingness to go along with me. There's, there's lots more uh, details to be filled in along the way. So if, if the whole picture doesn't seem to fit yet, uh, fair enough. This is uh, one of those projects that goes on not simply seven days, or in our case, uh, uh, five sessions, uh, but uh, the scriptures are rich enough and interesting enough to be read with our eyes gathered together for uh, all of our lives. Uh, I tell my students often, you know, about a billion years into eternity, you're just nicking the surface of who God is, you know. And here we are tied to time, uh, you know. Um, normal lifespan, uh, we suppose, is near eternal. The reality is we're, we're just dipping our toes into how profound and rich uh, and provocative uh, God's uh, presence uh, is as we come into it. So we turn this afternoon, and maybe uh, uh, apologies ahead of time, it, it may be a little bit of a downer this afternoon. Um, unless you take sin seriously, you won't take grace seriously. If you, if you presume grace without sin, it becomes artificial. But, but, if all you hear is sin and no grace, uh, 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 a much greater danger. And so I, I don't want to miss the, the seeds uh, here, if you will, of the gospel that I'll more fully explore tomorrow morning. Uh, but uh, this afternoon I have in mind to think uh, against the backdrop of Exodus 32, that paradigm text, in some ways like Genesis 3 is a paradigm text of temptation. And I mean paradigm in the sense that there's a pattern, uh, an archetypal pattern that echoes beyond it. Uh, and if we miss it and simply read its immediate context, 
and don't see the patterns, the way they gain traction even in our own lives, we miss the point. So it is with Exodus 32, this really very uh, amusing story in some ways, one of, one of the most humorous uh, stories I think we have in the scriptures, uh, building of this golden calf uh, and uh, all sorts of inner about idolatry. Right, here we come uh, to this uh, second half of the title of the weekend, Identity and Idolatry. If our identity is rooted in being created in God's image, that means being created in his temple to worship him. That's who you are. You're lots of other things, right? Your husbands, your wives, your children, uh, you're a chemist, you're a biologist, uh, you're a mathematician, uh, you're a neighbor. You play lots of roles, all of which are true, and all of which are find their center, the integrating center in the fact that you are created to worship, right? to desire God, as John Piper says, you know, to delight in that which he delights in. So all of life is to be an act of worship in some sense. Your marriage, your parenting, your labors, your uh, neighborhood uh, act, uh, all of that, uh, in some ways, is tied here. But, and, and uh, you've seen hints of it coming, but our, our present uh, reality is that there is this other side to us where we try to craft our own significance, our own security uh, by ourselves. Uh, the language of idolatry, right? Um, where we create, we craft, sometimes with our minds, but often with our hands, with our own experiences, uh, that significance and security which God alone can grant. It's not as if, and, and hear me out right at the outset, that the work of your hands, your minds, your lives is um, to be considered... Uh, somehow innately prone to evil. I, I don't think that at all. But I, I think by virtue of the fact that God creates us as beings who create, our tendency on this side of paradise is to use that God-given gift of creativity, whether it's with our hands, our minds, however, uh, for our own purposes. We find ourselves situated as we come to Exodus 32. Um, lots of interesting things that have happened between uh, Genesis 3 and Exodus uh, 32. Uh, we've made mention of the great bondage that Israel's found itself in in Egypt. Backing up a little bit, uh, we remember also that God has made covenant uh, with Abram. And he's renamed Abram, Abraham, the father of many nations, this great promise. And he gives to Abram and to Sarah uh, the gift they cannot imagine, uh, a child. No more precious gift in the ancient world to a barren couple. Uh, a child is the 
sign of God's faithfulness to covenant with Abram and to uh, Sarah. But strange thing is, and I wish I had another couple of sessions to talk about uh, the Abram-Isaac narratives. Um, God asks of Abram, after fulfilling the promise that Sarah can't even, she can't even get her mind around this promise. She laughs when she hears it. And then, in fact, it happens. Um, God asks Abram to sacrifice Isaac. It's one of those jolting texts. It's really a disturbing text. If you don't see how disturbing it is, you haven't really grappled with it. Um, at the end of that uh, 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 Genesis 21 story with Abram Isaac, I mean, what, was it, what, what was he telling Sarah the night before he's headed off on this journey? Oh, I had a conversation with God last night. Uh, he wants us to kill the son. I don't know. You know, uh, uh, Moses has such an uh, ability to expand the emotional contours of a narrative, but he also has the ability to so uh, condense a narrative that you're screaming out, I want some more here. What's going on? This is that Abraham Isaac uh, uh, episode is one of those where uh, uh, the, the author just condenses this text so uh, it's become such a terse story it screams for some uh, interesting commentary we don't have it what was the anxiety that abram felt at the sacrifice of his son well how does he explain it to isaac um oh dad we've got the wood we're ready to make a burnt offering here where's where, where's the lamb i mean what it's one of these stories that's so profoundly disturbing, you almost just have to awkwardly laugh. Right? I mean, it's, it's just uncomfortable. The uh, irony here is that uh, after the ram and the bush is provided, uh, Abraham is told by the angels that God will provide. That becomes a name for God, actually. God will provide. The place where it happened is named God will provide. It's a recurring theme. And when we get the story of the gospel, we find its true fulfillment. And this is a promise that pulls us ahead. But until we wrestle with the angst, the difficulty of really taking seriously God will provide, um, we won't understand why so often, then, we try to provide for ourselves. I mean, that, that's the juxtaposition that we're following as we follow this uh, uh, story of covenant. Uh, covenant with Abram, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Joseph. Again, if I were God, I wouldn't write the story this way. I mean, here the promised child, the promised people, the promised land, uh, follows a sojourn down into Egypt for 400 years. I mean, if I were God, I would have given them the promised land right away. Right? But here, here, the chosen of God uh, wind up down in slavery, in bondage. I'm thinking if I'm Joseph, uh, I'd like you to pick somebody else to be the chosen one, right? If this is the story I'm to follow accused uh, by Potiphar's wife 
of actions he did not commit. He's unjustly uh, uh, put into the prisons there in Egypt. I'm shouting at God if I'm Joseph at this point. But of course, the story doesn't uh, uh, find its fundamental voice in Joseph's conscience. Uh, it's, It's rather, you see this big picture begin to develop. And Joseph descends into the very pit of Egyptian prison, and then he ascends to the point of the throne. Uh, And so Pharaoh uh, now rewards him um, for preparing the kingdom, the Egyptian kingdom, for seven years of famine. Uh, We have uh, a movement uh, here uh, that, as Joseph says to the brothers uh, right at the end of the story, God, God bent all of this for good. But before he said that, he said something else. You meant it for evil. The brothers. The brothers that had sold him into slavery. Who's responsible for Joseph going down into Egypt? Was it the brothers or was it God? Every good theological question, yes. Yes. Um, That's the... The, the, this great truth that comes at the end of the story, that it is the divine narrative. This is God's story. This has been, shall I say, in a Calvinistic fashion, predestined. This is what was going to happen. That's what God intended. But rest assured, the brothers, accountable for every one of their actions. Right? Their intentions were not diminished because of the divine intention. But neither is the divine story somehow diminished because it's an actual human story. I haven't figured this one out yet. It's one of those things you hold on with both hands and just pray, mostly. But somehow you see in your own life that you're fully culpable. You're fully accountable. You're really radically responsible. And all of it happens because of God. Anyway, so... uh, 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 Moses uh, then emerges in the story as part of this Abrahamic line. And he finds himself ill-equipped to be the one who's going to bring Israel out of Egypt. Though he's been trained in the courts, uh, he has a uh, very interesting birth story. Again, another course, another time. Whenever you see a birth narrative in the Bible, you're thinking about Jesus. Uh, birth stories, stories about life, about the gift of life, the miracle of life. Uh, and, and they're sprinkled throughout. Uh, Isaac has his special birth narrative. We know that one, right? Uh, Moses does too. Uh, Moses' birth is about uh, the curse and the liberation from the curse. Pharaoh's curse upon Egypt, all the firstborn are to be killed. Uh, and the deliverance of this little baby Moses in the ark. Same term there used in Exodus uh, 1 as we found uh, back in the flood narrative in uh, Genesis 6 to 9. Uh, 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 Moses is saved by being delivered in the ark, uh, uh, in this little basket, shall we call it. Uh, and he is now raised uh, by 
his own mother, ironically, who gave himself, uh, her son, up, only to have her son delivered back to her. It's a really kind of uh, strange uh, way the story is told. And Pharaoh, uh, who executes this curse upon Israel, the death of the firstborn, finds that same curse visited upon him. Right? Proportional justice is what they call it. An eye for an eye. Uh, we think of it as barbaric. But in fact, it's a principle that you get what you deserve. Right? Not less, not more. That there is a relationship between action and consequences. Except when it comes to God. He gives you something you don't deserve. Right? He forgives. He shows grace and mercy. Uh, this is the remarkable story. Well, uh, uh, the, the, the episode which overshadows all of the Old Testament, undoubtedly, is the story of the Exodus. And we're just going to skip it, mostly. Apologies. I want to get on to this other episode after the Exodus. The Exodus is the redemptive event of the Old Testament. You cannot understand redemption in the New Testament unless you understand the Exodus event. Every single one of the authors, we're talking about it at lunch, every single one of the authors of the New Testament books we have were Jewish. And the language of Exodus, of, uh, of deliverance, of redemption, comes from this episode. Doesn't mean that it's the same thing as Israel's deliverance from Egypt. But the conceptual neighborhood from which we gain the terms that are used by the New Testament authors come from this locale, right. this episode of deliverance. And why we would pay, uh, uh, we would do ourselves well by paying a lot closer attention to these, uh, 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 the, the movement of Exodus uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, as we understand uh, the telling of the story of our own bondage, right. our own deliverance. The fact that we have been redeemed. Uh, Israel is redeemed not to give them uh, political rights. Israel is redeemed for a purpose. And the purpose is so that they would worship the living God. Right? They are brought out of Egypt, not so that life would be better. In fact, they discover out in the desert. Can you believe they say this actually? God you know, it's probably a little bit better back there. We knew where the meals were coming from, right? Well, you know, one of these. Uh, they are brought out of Egypt, not for their own creaturely comforts. They are brought out of Egypt in order to worship. It's a, um, an echo, I think, of Genesis, that they are now recreated in order to worship, even as... Adam and Eve are created to worship. A whole imagery, and we find that in John's Gospel uh, in particular. Now, they, they, they are delivered from Egypt. Uh, they come out into uh, the desert uh, to worship the living God. Moses ascends the mountain there in Exodus 19. Uh, and we have this classic picture of God's presence in the midst of Israel. The, the, the cloud... Uh, the earthquake, the lightning, the thunder, the fence built around the mountain lest anybody come into the presence of God and die. This, this very uh, kind of cosmic uh, story 
of God meeting Israel, but meeting Israel on the mountain. That's in the ancient world, that's where you would have met God. It's the mountains of the place between the heavens and the earth. Uh, uh, and so uh, uh, this picture is captured uh, for us as Moses ascends the mount, goes into the cloud, uh, and Israel now is nervous. Who's, who's going to lead them in the desert? Moses has gone too long. Uh, and so they gather together, uh, and they build the golden calf. But that's the distance between Exodus 19 and Exodus 32. We're going to make one little stop in Exodus 20, a text that probably you're quite familiar with. Uh, but I, I want to read uh, the Ten Commandments, not as a constitution by which Israel's law comes into being. But rather, here we find uh, at the very outset of Israel's existence, freed from Egypt, what their identity is. This is a law, yes, to be obeyed, the Ten Commandments, but it's not a moral code. This is a code about worship. This is a code that defines Israel's existence in the wilderness. In fact, how does the uh, introduction to the commandments begin? God spoke all these words. Right away, you're you're thinking uh, a creation text. God speaks them into being. And now they become permanent, semi-permanent. They're written on stone. Uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He establishes his covenantal identity by an appeal to history. I am the God who. This is one of the uh, kind of summaries of the great stories of Israel that begins with the identification of God in lieu of what he's done. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, I am to be your greatest desire. I think is the gist of this point, but I want to just uh, tweak it a little bit. Uh, Israel, one uh, uh, the earliest of the monotheistic religions in the ancient world, the belief that there was one God. Now, if in fact that's so, and I think it is, I think Israel wrestled with this issue about how many gods there were, but let's just suppose uh, that uh, at this juncture anyway, God knows that there's only one God. Uh, what's the sense then of saying you're to have no other gods? There aren't any other gods, right? But now, why would there be a warning to have no other gods if there weren't any other gods? It's that, I think, query that leads us to see this, that the claim that God alone is God, nonetheless, is qualified by our inclination to find our own gods and create them in our image. 
The gods, plural, small g, don't exist. And they exert enormous power over you. Uh, uh, What I call the danger of nothing. Um, There's a saying among the British. Uh, I'm I'm, going to get it wrong here. Uh, Picked it up from Alistair McIntyre's very early essay on British religion. Something in the order of uh, 80% of the British don't believe there is a God except... uh, No, 80% of the British don't believe there is a God uh, and uh, that you ought to pray to him when in trouble. Something of that sort, right? That is, you create a God when you need one. Now, I think the point here of, uh, of the first commandment is not an ontological or a metaphysical claim about uh, 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 paganism. But it is rather a claim about the human heart. It's a claim about worship. Uh, uh, we are inclined to find our own gods. But you are to honor me above all. Desire what I desire. Delight in that which I delight in. Here is the oomph of the first commandment. It's, if you will, framing uh, of Israel's identity uh, between the worship of the living God and their tendency to find their own gods. Uh, here is the, the, the contest, which leads us then to the second uh, commandment. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. Now, in fact, if uh, the author of this text remembered what they had written back in 126, this very special imagery of image must be in the background. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above, earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth. There's something interesting about that verse that echoes something you uh, saw back in Genesis 1. The author is is appealing, I think, implicitly the backgrounds, the allusions here to Genesis 1. The heavens above, the earth here, and the waters below. This kind of threefold cosmology is a literary device, a figure, to say the whole shooting match is God, and don't make any of it into your own God. Now, he's in fact just said that in the first commandment. I think in many ways the second commandment is just the first commandment repeated with a different voice. We have... And for a time, I think rightly so, seeing the second commandment as a prohibition against any uh, kind of likeness of God uh, in public worship. We can argue about that later, uh, after I leave. Um, uh, but the heart of it, it, that misses the point altogether. This is, this is not about crafting a picture that is more or less accurate of God, but is actually of crafting a God uh, uh, with our own hands. That's, that's the point about a graven image, a carved image, an image you make. Um, and all attempts to refashion our identity are idolatrous in this respect. That 
the identity is found fundamentally in our reflection of God. But now we turn around and we refashion our identity in the image of the idol, that which we made with our own hands. We are tempted to define the meaning of our lives, its significance, its security, by our desires, rather than bringing our desires into conformity with the one who made us. You shall not bow down to them, verse 5, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Why is God jealous? I've often wondered about that, that peculiarly kind of a personal uh, attribute. Um, jealousy isn't always righteous. But I think in this instance, God's jealousy is entirely good. For that in which alone my heart will be satisfied is him. And so his love of me is in fact jealous. For if I go chasing after other loves that will not satisfy, uh, God will still be God. But I, I will be diminished in the process. My identity will get corrupted, polluted. Um, and it's that which God here uh, is protecting. I, uh, uh, I think, in fact, the second commandment is a commandment less about um, the prohibition that attached to Worship, uh, 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 um, in one sense. They, they are more nearly a protection of our identity, the sanctity of human life as a reflection of God. So it, it, uh, they are, if you will, don't forget that you are the image of the living God. That's, I think, this, the heart of the second commandment. Don't settle for an identity rooted in idols. It's the protection of the nature of humanity, if you will, rather than a protection of his own reputation or something of that sort. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. I think, in fact, this is first two commandments repeated from another angle. It's not a reference to profanity as such. I find it culturally interesting why we use the name of Jesus at the end of a sentence when we're really mad. But leaving aside that cultural uh, quirkiness, uh, this is about protecting the name and not identifying God's being with anything in creation. Don't associate the Lord merely as identical with creation. He is the creator. The Lord's name is heavy, it's weighty, it's robust. In fact, God alone names God. He's told this to Moses in the burning bush. The 
uh, name of God that we get there in the burning bush, I am who I am, the uh, famous uh, uh, tetragrammaton that Israel was afraid even to say, lest they take God's name in vain. So they shortened it and just spoke the, the consonants in it, right? uh, that story. But think about it in that. I am who I am. I think God is saying, on one hand, you're not going to name me. That's not really a name. But on the other hand, it's a way of saying, I am. Uh, my my identity is, you know, and just it goes on. There, there, there's, there's a sense in which God's existence, I hate to use that term when it comes to God, uh, as if it could be otherwise, but uh, God just is. Now, there was a time before which I was, and there well could be a time after which I'm not. But with God, God just is. I mean, you have to say it like with this... Uh, Cecil B. DeMille voice, you know, this megaphone kind of voice, which I don't have. I have this kind of shrill, brittle voice. But this divine word is just permanent. Just God is. So protecting the name of God here is don't associate it, don't identify it, don't domesticate it as if it's just like the chair beside you, the person beside you. That comes and goes. God builds a temple for his name. Kind of interesting language, 1 Kings 7. Solomon, after David having been refused the right to build a temple for God, God says, I can't be contained, and then says to Solomon, oh, by the way, I'd like a temple. Uh, All sorts of questions. Because David had a very nice house. Uh, uh, Finally, when the kingdom was consolidated under his rule for a very short time, uh, one of the few moments in Israel's history where, in fact, they did uh, have the promised land under the Davidic rule, although he was persecuted on the front end uh, uh, of his life and the back end of his life by Saul and then uh, by his own son Absalom. Uh, Here, the chosen one again uh, uh, intensely. But uh, David had this enormous house. And his first intuition is, I want my God to have a house almost as good as mine. I mean, that's the intuition and why David is prohibited from building a house for his God. But Solomon's temple is very theological. It's it's architecture. It's all sorts of uh, signs and structures of its significance. The outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. What does that remind you of? creation itself, which is built in three stages, the heavens, the earth, and the seas below them, right? This threefold architecture is profoundly theological. And the temple is that in the middle, God, so that the weight of God's being, if you will, rests in this place. Uh, And we'd be very cautious about coming too close. I mean, uh, 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 there's a whole structure, a whole set of walls about how you move from the outer court to the inner court and how you get from the inner court to the Holy of Holies. And it's to be meticulously obeyed because God's presence, God's name is so weighty. 
and so significant. Protect his name. That God is God. Well, of course he is, Rick. Right? Who else is God? But think of all the ways we tame him, domesticate him, that he is our servant. He, his task is primarily to make life comfortable or to solve your issues. On it goes. Uh, 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 all too quickly, the Sabbath command. Sabbath command here rooted in creation as well. Uh, uh, whoever's writing this text, I think it is Moses, uh, uh, these, these commandments all have Genesis 1 in view. This is the, a new creation, if you will, going on, or at least an a echo of the first creation uh, here. Uh, and the Sabbath command is a command of worship, a delight. But worship is not, uh, in the first instance, a result of obedience. Worship uh, is, in the first instance, natural. We are hardwired for worship. It arises from our uh, very identity. Uh, the Sabbath doesn't add, if you will, uh, another layer to the law. The Sabbath is a fundamental reflection of creation itself. Our labors uh, in Israel uh, look forward on the first six days of their work week to that culminating period of worship so that they, they uh, if you will, they look forward with great anticipation of God's presence, of God's delight among them. This is not an accidental part of Israel's administration. This is absolutely fundamental to their existence. And the great dilemma in Israel in exile, uh, after the temple is destroyed or, or they are taken out uh, in the Babylonian captivity, how can we worship God? Where is God to be worshipped? For the Sabbath is connected to God's presence. In temple. Without temple, how do we worship? It's a remarkable story of the New Testament. Jesus is that temple. All of life belongs to God. And the Sabbath is that pungent, provocative reminder of that reality. On it goes, I think, into the uh, commandment to honor your parents, the command to tell the truth, command not to kill. All of those are reflections of the fact that God is reflected in your life. Right? That's what worship is, that you delight in him. Uh, but um, onwards to Exodus 32. Uh, yeah, apologies uh, that we can't spend more time in Exodus 20. Moses is on the mountain. Um, and 
the people gather themselves with Aaron, and they ask Aaron to make gods who shall go before us. Uh, As for Moses, they say, uh, the one who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He's up there 40 days. It's actually the same amount of days Jesus is in the desert. And I, I think we have more time with draw the literary parallels between this episode and the temptation narrative, but for another time. Um, so Aaron says, okay, give me all your jewelry. Let's, let's get this thing done now. Uh, and uh, what I'm interested in is this really unusual conversation then between God and Moses. I mean, what would it have been like then up on the mountain and hearing the voice of God? No, no, as we've said this morning, vocal cords, no lips. But there, M- Moses hears these words. He believed he heard these words. Uh, verse 7. Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. This is one of the great kind of uh, sidelights to this conversation, right? They argue back and forth whose people these are. Right. Uh, Moses, uh, your people are just, you know, um, you let them out of Egypt. You can have them, basically. Uh, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded. Made for themselves, verse 8, a golden calf, worshipped it, sacrificed it. Said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Right. God is telling Moses that even the people are not giving credit to Moses. So a double whammy to Moses. These are your people, Moses. But they don't even recognize that you're, uh, they're your people. Uh, Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. They are, uh, are a stiff-necked people. As we said this morning, that stiff neck is like the golden calf. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. Now, uh, uh, the English doesn't capture it fully. God's, uh, God's nostrils are turning up here. This is a kind of uh, graphic image uh, of anger. And God is just, you know, you get, make one of those faces, you know, when your children do something. And uh, in some ways, it's, it's also a, uh, a context of a bull's nose, a, a, a turning up. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of agrarian uh, uh, intuition behind it as well. Uh, Moses says, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people right. whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Look, if you do this, he says, the Egyptians are going to consider your name mud in these parts. You did these wonderful, remarkable miracles to get these people out of bondage, and then you destroyed them. Think how good that's going to go down around this ancient Near Eastern world, right? Your name's at stake, God. Your reputation. It could be ruined uh, here. Now, that's how we read it, as if God is being chastised by Moses. 
Rest assured, that's not happening. Right? But that's the nature of this text. There is this real genuine sense in which Moses is undergoing a test. Does he understand? Does he affirm before the living God that these are not his people? Right? These people don't belong to him. Right? A great uh, temptation of a pastor is to suppose that you, the church, belong to him. Now, the, the great temptation on your part is to suppose the church belongs to the pastor as well. Right? Now, how, how do you refer to churches mostly? Oh, that's Jim's church. That's Mary's church, right? Whoever the pastor might be. No, no, no. Right? This is God's church. These are his people. You are his people. Right? He brought you up out of the land of slavery. Right? He's recreated you in his image. <coughs> Moses passes the test in part here. This is about whether Moses will be faithful to covenant. Remember, Moses says, verse 13, Abram, Isaac, and Israel. Remember covenant. Uh, In fact, that's where Israel's hope was, that God would be faithful to his promises. And Moses here remembers. Memory is a fragile thing in our day. I used to think that uh, I was losing my memory uh, because I was getting older, which is true, which is true. But I read an interesting piece in the New York Times uh, that said uh, sensory overload of the sort uh, we ordinary adults experience will inevitably produce memory loss. It's a cultural reality, this memory loss stuff as well as a psychological reality. Uh, So I can blame it on the culture, I guess. Um, But in Israel, memory is very important. To remember covenant. To remember uh, uh, what God has done. Uh, Not to live, if you will, in the moment, but to reach back and hold on to those memories of God's faithfulness. Uh, So significant. Uh, So Moses goes down the mountain then. God relents. God postpones judgment. Well, not really. Not really. Be careful you don't read verse 14. God relents as God relenting. This is about Moses. This is a test of Moses. This is not a test of God. Get that out of your minds now. Moses goes down the mountain and what happens? His nostrils get mad when he sees this uh, golden calf episode. He takes on the very reflection of God as Israel's mediator. The one who stands between Israel and Yahweh. The one who pleads for Israel uh, before the presence of God. And the one who pleads Yahweh's case in the presence of Israel. And so... Making the story short and gruesome, Moses comes down the mountain and does two things, basically. He wipes out 3,000 people that day. Has God's judgment relented? Uh, 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 This is swift and terrible judgment. I mean, it just is. Uh, But I'm more interested, not in the slashing of the, uh, the heads, so to speak, gruesome enough, Moses says to this people, gathered around this God, this golden calf, this agrarian idol, 
that's meant to feed them in the desert, let's see if it works. Let's smelt it back down and see what it tastes like. Let's see if it can feed you. And he has them swallow their idol. They they take their idol into themselves. Uh, Theologically, they're becoming like their idol. Moses is here signifying. They, They drink the thing that was to be their drink. They eat that which was to be their food. And they become like that which they hoped in. They become the stiff-necked people. They become the blind people. They become that which cannot hear. And that goes with them now generation after generation. Now, I don't think uh, uh, I want to make a claim that all idolatry is golden calf idolatry. I don't know about your church here at Bethel Grove or wherever. Uh, I don't see any golden calves around. We don't do that sort of thing. Uh, But there's a pattern of our lives where this serves as a kind of interpretive lens, a metaphor uh, for our continuing pattern to find our significance and security in the things we make, right, on our own terms. Um, this this originating claim that we are images of the living God is subverted now when we become like the idols we've made. And uh, the language of idolatry, like the language of sin, is conceptually very messy. Sin is sometimes breaking of a law. But sometimes sin is also delighting in that which is not beautiful. Uh, Sin is uh, like a bad odor. We had a uh, skunk in our garage uh, a couple of months ago, late last summer, actually. Uh, I had nightmares for weeks ahead. What would have happened had that skunk unloaded? Uh, I guarantee you that smell wouldn't have stayed in the garage. It just would have wafted through every room in the house. This is like sin. Sin kind of just is a bad odor that smells in every room of our house, every room of our life. And uh, the the imagery of the nose, the whole uh, thematic study of the Bible, and see how significant odors are. It's it's very interesting. Uh, But uh, one of the metaphors of sin is is this... um, Stench. It doesn't smell good. Uh, For most of us, uh, smells either are pleasant or not. There are very few odors that are noticeable to us that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But mostly you haven't chosen which ones are pleasant to you or which ones aren't. They just are. Now, the the point here is that idolatry is a really large umbrella of constructs. It's conceptually squishy. It it, uh, explains a lot of our lives. And we ought to be careful of uh, tying it down too closely. 
underneath all of those episodes of idolatry uh, is this subversion, perversion, turning upside down the original relationship of creature to creator. That's at the heart of all uh, uh, here. Uh, That the uh, language is of the mirror uh, now creating the object which finds its meaning in its reflection. Rather than the object, namely God, being reflected in the mirror. I, I know that's kind of hard to, uh, thought experiment to get around, but the, 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 the point we who are created to make God visible subvert that identity uh, when we become, if you will, as God and create our own reflection, which has the ironic consequence of turning back around and recreating us in its image. I'm, I'm uh, debating in my mind how much, uh, how much more to pack. Uh, let me unpack a little bit more. Um, Moses uh, sends back up the mountain uh, uh, the second day, the third day, actually. Um, swift judgment has come. They've destroyed the idol and eaten it. Moses goes back up and pleads for forgiveness, as he ought to have. That was his role as the mediator. God, forgive these people. What's strange about this is that it's not simply a request that God would be patient with them, but that God would accept Moses as the down payment for forgiveness. Uh, forgive these people or take my life. Uh, Accept my life as the sacrifice for the forgiveness of these people. Uh, uh, As you know, uh, God says thanks, but no. Uh, Those who sin will be judged is the end of Exodus 32. Exodus 33 begins when God takes his presence away from Israel. Point, however, uh, here is that Moses is a a mediator that stands between God and his people. But Moses is not the one uh, that will uh, serve as that final atoning sacrifice on behalf of his people. He prepares us for uh, another mediator. Uh, Israel's existence from that point forward wrestles always between worship of the living God and the worship of idols. Um, We see it in, uh, go read Isaiah 44. For example, uh, Isaiah 6, um, Leviticus 20, uh, Hosea, Hosea, all of Hosea, actually, Nehemiah 9, uh, on the list goes. Uh, um, 
Let me just uh, uh, close, at, at least uh, for, for now, maybe give a little bit more punch as we close, by suggesting this uh, archetypal language of idolatry before long merges into the theological language of adultery. A recurring theme across the scriptures as well. That idolatry is like adultery. Uh, and that when Israel commits idolatry, finds its identity in gods other than God, they are like an unfaithful bride. Uh, so the imagery of whoring after other gods. Uh, marriage as the metaphor, only a picture, only a metaphor, but a powerful, concrete one that helps us explain our relationship to our bridegroom, to God, uh, now subverted in idolatry, is uh, uh, in many ways illuminated in our own experience of adultery. That our hearts, intended for this unique covenantal relationship, uh, go astray to find something that's better. Uh, And often on our own own terms. Um, The story of Hosea, the story of of one who's called to go marry a prostitute uh, at the uh, command of God as a way to help Israel understand what it has been like for Yahweh to be married to Israel. Um, a little bit close to home. How often, uh, not that we want to abandon all that God has given us, but, but we also want to play around on the side. We, we want a God, but we want also a God that is controllable. We, we want a God who gives us big purpose in life, but we also want a God that we can control. We want, as Dick uh, Kai uh, speaks, we want a faraway idol, but we want a nearby idol. We want meaning in life, but we want it on our terms. We want to be married, or at least sometimes, but, but we also want a little bit of adultery on the side to keep it interesting as the metaphor. One of the powerful idols of our own time, it seems to me, is pornography. And it is, after all, a strange mix of idolatry and adultery. What's, after all, the attraction, especially on this remarkable uh, and perverse industry of Internet pornography? For many men, uh, and, and if we think of any church as being immune to this, we're crazy. Uh, uh, what's the attraction? You can't even touch the person on the screen. Um, It's, uh, how how could you possibly think that that's uh, worthwhile? Uh, Precisely because you control when and where. It's on your terms. That's the power of the idol, that it supposes your control. And so you get quickly, on your own terms, what you think you need. But 
it's addictive. The idol comes around and grabs you. It holds you. Thinking you come for your own control, for your own pleasure, for your own convenience. It turns around and grabs you by the throat. We know that. The momentary becomes addictive. There's no real person. That's why you can control it. Just like there are no such things as idols, but they control you. Nothing is dangerous. So it is, and I don't suppose it's the unforgivable sin, so don't hear me say that. Neither is adultery the unforgivable sin. There is no sin apart from apart from the claim that we don't belong to God, right? uh, which is a, 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 another story. But um, let, let me suggest these these idolatries, the golden calf idolatry, the the, the idolatry of of pornography. Uh, all find grace in the gospel. Uh, that uh, the power of our idols is what I want you to be aware of. But tomorrow morning, I want to remind you that by comparison to the power of the living God, the idols are nothing. Uh, and so uh, there is hope in the midst of our own enduring and often addictive attraction to our idols, be it our reputation, be it our jobs, be it our friends, be it fill in the blank, the things that you suppose will grant you significance and security. The great uh, critics of Christianity in the 19th century Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche, Ludwig Feuerbach, host of others, supposed uh, that religion was always idolatrous. It's a very interesting take, and in part, I think they were almost always right. That is, those of us who are religious are always tempted to make our religion on our own terms. The Christians uh, create God all too often to suit their needs. And that the, the power of Marx or Nietzsche is precisely to recognize within us our own domestication of the living God. And that God is not worth worshiping. Not on our terms, not created with our own hands. And too often we use religion to protect ourselves. To keep the hordes, the mobs, out there. And the good people here. I tell my students, most of whom are preparing for ministry, that there are no harsher words spoken in the New Testament than those who are professionally religious. Go into anything else you can. 
but don't mix money and ministry. Right? Now, part of the reality of our lives. Right? But we suppose, do we not, that the idols really are out there and not in our own hearts. Right? Pastors are, uh, are, are fragile uh, creatures just like you and I. Why you ought to pray for your pastor. Uh, why you ought to uh, encourage uh, uh, them. What, why you ought to support them. But do not um, uh, miss the point uh, that there is great danger in those of us who take this religion stuff seriously. Uh, there is. I stand behind a pulpit, a podium, for a living. Uh, I will be accountable one day to the living God. I will be. I, I know that in my inner bones. Uh, for the claim that I don't domesticate the God who made me. Most of us who have a profession of teaching are, are, are teachers because we think we know something, which is the most dangerous thing there is. That we control this area of our expertise. Could you imagine how dangerous it is to teach about God? Uh, and the great warnings that attach to it. Uh, there is something dangerous about gathering together as God's people. Uh, but there is great hope. There is great hope. Uh, and we find that hope uh, tomorrow morning. So, uh, <laughs> I'm going to end there. <laughs>